Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. All right, on today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Greg Mulkey. I'm going to call Greg Mulkey at least in off-road, the godfather of beadlock rims. <laughs> All right. There may be some military application or something else down the road that, that I don't know about, but we're going to find out about all about rims and Greg's life in off-road. And before that, big, extensive history in circle track racing and all sorts of racing. So let's talk to Greg. Hey, Greg, thank you for coming on board today with conversations with Big Rich. I, I know that everybody's going to be very interested in hearing what you have to say. So thank you for coming on board. Hey, it's great to be here, Rich. And I don't know, the history of uh, beadlocks and wheels and Greg Mulkin racing goes back quite a way. So this is going to be an interesting conversation. Oh, I agree 100%. So let's get started a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of influences you had as a youth that might have gotten you into what you're doing? Well, in younger years, um, I guess my first big race experience that I remember is watching the Daytona 500 live on TV, on ESPN, I believe, or it might have been CBS or one of those channels back then. But, I mean, I was a little whippersnapper, and I can remember at kind of a house party and everybody watching the NASCAR 500 down at Daytona. And so from then on, I was kind of hooked on the stuff. One of the uh, classmates that I went to school with, his father was named Lyle Marsh, and they had what was called Marsh Racing Tires. And I knew a little bit about it as we went on, but at about age 14, I got invited to go to a dirt track race. I believe it was in Van Buren, Arkansas. And I got to meet Lyle Marsh. And at that time, they were just selling tires and recap tires. They were the biggest recap tire company in the U.S. And I just kept hanging around here. It was just interesting how everything worked over there and racing and uh, how everybody was going over there to see what he was doing. And so I bugged him and bugged him if I could help him do something. And finally, he gave me a box of tear-offs, which were thin lenses that were stacked upon each other that you stacked on your face shield, your helmet in dirt track racing. Of course, the dirt coming off the racetrack would get on your face and you couldn't see and you'd rip these lenses off. Well, I sold every one he had on the trailer that night and <laughs> going around to the racers and meeting them and all that. I mean, I had a blast. I thought I was on top of the world, man. And 
So he kind of got a kick out of it. So I, he started toting me to races when I was 14. And, uh, you know, they always had to sneak me in the pits because I was pretty young. And so I went from that to where I started working on the weekends. And, you know, during the summers, I would go to the races and to the shows. And I was the kid in the back that was always busting down the tires. And back before beadlocks, you know, you had inner tubes and you had a duckbill hammer and a couple of spoons, and that's how you changed a tire and wheel. There weren't tire machines. And so back then, it was all done by hand. So that's what I would do at most dirt track races. And, but, man, I paid attention to a lot of things going on and learned a lot about wheels and tires. And, you know, Lyle, he was the guy that would read between the lines and the gray areas, the racers would call it, where there ain't a rule, but you can do something in that area. And you as a promoter deal with it all the time, I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that was Lyle. So we were always trying to figure out how to make things faster. And back in those days when the recapping, we manufactured our own rubber. You know, we would buy uh, pure raw rubber. Really? And we had a mill, and we would mix things into it to make the rubber soft. And you had to make it last so long and so many laps. And it was a lot of little fine things you had to pay attention to. And through all of that learning, those fine things and making tires and stuff, when we really started getting into building wheels, because once we were popular with tires, wheels were the next best thing. So um, we used to build wheels the old-fashioned way of stamping them out, blowing them out with a torch, the centers, and drilling the holes and sticking them in the wheels. Well, once we started getting all that going, wheels and tires, started getting the cars hooked up. And that was back in the days when a sprint car was called a modified. Right. And these modified were six cylinders. And they would try to run DOT tires or truck tires to get as many miles or as laps out of them. They wouldn't cut holes in them and stuff. So then we would take those tires and we would recap them. And we made them where they would hook the cars up really good. With the compounds. So the problem arose. Right. Yeah, with the softer rubber. Well, where it really started getting pretty dicey was because once you hook the tire up really hard on the wheel and run low air pressure, as we know in off-road industry, we would take the wheel off of the bead of the wheel and you'd have a flat and then the tire would dig in and the wheel would dig in the track and you would lose control of the car. And a lot of times you'd spin out in front of 14 or 15 other guys behind you and it would just pile all the cars up. So something had to help, you know. So the guys went through the screws like we do in drag racing still today and the gorilla snot glue and sandpaper glued on and all kinds of types of things. And it came a time to where uh, Lyle kind of pulled all of us together and said, you know, we got to do something. And so he set us all up on a mission to build a way of keeping the tire retained on the wheel. Okay. Well, I went and got me a bunch of nuts and got me a wheel and drilled a hole in the valley of the wheel on the outside edge, about where the valve stem is, that's really the safety bead bump on the inside of the wheel that the tire has to pop up over. And so I knew the tire bead would be up past that bump, so I drilled holes about every six inches and welded a nut. And then went and got a bolt and silicone and ran that bolt down that nut down in behind the back of the bead of the tire. Worked really well. Problem was, it would get dirt and stuff in between the bolts, and it would leak air. And one of the guys, uh, his last name was Jensen. He's, he's no longer with us, but 
he came up with a device that is as we see today, which was a ring welded to the wheel and an outer ring, and then the bolts that go just inside the idea of the beat of the tire so that we could smash them and make them part of the wheel. And once we did that in the dirt track deal, we just had heydays. Um, couldn't build them fast enough. And really, the off-road industry really wasn't nowhere like it was now. It was just mainly Deerwood stuff. I mean, they still were having Baja and all the stuff out on the West Coast in the deserts. But, you know, back here in the East Coast, we were all still in the Deerwoods. And, you know, one guy challenging the other guy with their four-wheel drive to see who could get up a tree farthest without turning it over on its side. Right. It's just stuff like that. So once we built the B-Lock and started racing these cars on the dirt track, we aggressed a lot and learned a lot about B-Locks. And back then, they were pretty primitive, basically like just two steel rings that people try to get away with today, you know, like weld-on B-Locks. Right. It was something similar to that. And then we learned that it was really tough on the bead to the tires, so there had to be some kind of contour to the rings. And so at that time, we started sand casting. And I don't know if many people know about sand casting. But it was an art that in the old days where you took, for the best I can describe it, a can with a lid. And you would open this can set on top of a flame. And you would open up the lid. And it was full of sand and uh a, a type of stuff to hold the sand together. And once you heated it up to a certain temperature, we had a oak wood outer beadlock ring that we had, had carved out on a lathe. And we would press that into that sand cast and put the lid down and get our deal in it and then quickly open it, pull that out, drop it back down. And we had a molten deal set beside that would mix up the cast aluminum ingots and we would pour that in and we would make one ring at a time. Wow. Back then, uh, heat treating, you know, because if you just made a cast, you could throw it on the floor and it would just shatter. Right. And so in contact, like there was in dirt track racing, because everybody's turning left and smashing into the, you know, the left-hand side of your car. So the right-hand side would hit the wall, hit everything to burn. And if the beadlock ring didn't hold up, it didn't, the system didn't work. And so we started heat treating with a powder coat oven. <laughs> So, trust me, there's a lot more technical ways everything is done nowadays. Powder coat oven. Or what, suit. Was it a powder coat yeah, oven or was it really an uh, oven? It was a powder coat oven. Okay. It was a powder coater. And so, he would run the temperature up and we got it into the, you know, up into the 300s and so. And it's the best we could do back then. But right. I could take a ring that would shatter on the floor to a ring that would not shatter on the floor. Okay. And so, that made it, you know, the kneeling and the and the hardening and all that, it, it made it, it just took the brittleness out of it, so to speak. And it was never right, you know, because it was, you know, casting nowadays is done in a manner where it's mostly low pressure. So instead of augering it up into just raw stuff and dumping it down into a dye, which is basically what we were doing, and having a consistency of like 80 grit sandpaper, you know, you could break it apart and look at the grit. Right. And that would tell you. And so nowadays, with the low pressure, you would actually suck the total air out of the dye, and it would turn from 80-grit sandpaper to 180-grit sandpaper. So that's basically kind of the short differences between 60-61 and cast in the old days. Okay. Cast has came a long ways now. So with all that going on, 
uh, we applied for a patent and patent was pending for years. Well, the patent was turned down because of a snap ring on a semi wheel, the wheel that killed lots of people because 115 pounds of air pressure and a big tire and that ring would pop off in your face. Right. So they, they did not give us a patent and that kind of opened the flood doors for everybody else. I remember the first race that we went to was a big sprint car race. And I believe it was Sleepy Trip that was driving the car. And we'd put a B-lock on his right rear. And he went out and hit the track record by, oh, man, over two seconds. And, of course, everybody, this is a USAC race, a sanctioned USAC race. And so everybody was like, oh, his motor's cheating. He's cheating. There's no way. And so they literally tore his car apart and didn't find anything wrong. And one of the techs was starting, they were all getting ready to walk off and call the race good. And they looked down and they asked what all the bolts were doing on the outside of the wheel. And they told him it was, uh, Lyle had told him it was a safety device to keep the tires from coming off the wheels and having such violent wrecks, which was killing a lot of people. Right. Suck the tire off the right rear at 80 miles an hour in the corner. You're going for a ride. I mean, the dirty side going up many times before it stops. Yeah. And so... USAC disqualified trip and disqualified the time because it wasn't an approved USAC device. Although the following year, it was a mandatory right rear product. You had to have a right rear beadlock to race USAC the following year. And so that ignited a whole bunch of beadlock sales. And so it was on. We, we, we had trouble keeping up. I would and, you imagine know, such if other you're company. pouring them one at, one at a time. Well, by then, we had stepped it up, okay, and we were stamping them out of steel because, as you said, it was so hard to build them one at a time fast like that. Right. We just couldn't do it. Uh, we actually went and got involved into injecting molding plastics, and we built injection molded plastic rings, which led to plastic wheels, which I'll get into a little bit later, but... You know, the dirt track wheels uh, and B-locks. So here the B-lock starts to evolve. And you have sanctioning bodies like NASCAR and IMCA, which is a, still a big sanctioning body in dirt track racing. But you had NASCAR. And we wanted to get B-locks legal in NASCAR. And so we, I approached them at a big NASCAR race and actually got a meeting with Bill French Jr., Nice. And had a discussion with him for a little bit and made the comment to him that, you know, the races won't be over till two 30 or three o'clock in the morning. And he's like, no, that's no, we run a really tight ship. And, and I go, okay. And he says, why do you think that'll happen? I said, because everybody knocks the tires off the right rear and they crash all the cars. He thought about it for a second and he actually invited me to sit in the grandstands with him that night. And in the grandstands, the first race rolled out, there was I think 18 cars. I told him less than 10 would finish the race. And he just kind of laughed, snuffled. Hey, it was about nine or 10 cars finished the race. And it was about <laughs> three o'clock in the morning when we left the racetrack. And his comment to me when we left the racetrack was just, so this B-lock device that you showed me today earlier, this will actually take care of that problem. I said, yes, sir, it will. And he says, how many of them do you have with you? And I said, I brought enough on for every car here and I can have more brought up. So they made an announcement 
that night and then all that next morning. And I spent that whole next morning and day, me and my partner, we mounted 126 beadlocks and had another truck come up with other beadlocks. And so NASCAR from then on was legal beadlocks on the right rear. So then that opened up the floodgates to even more beadlocks. And so it's really, it's really rocking and rolling now and we're rolling. And so we decided to expand into other markets and that comes into the plastic wheels. And so we had good luck with the plastic outer ring, uh, putting it on our steel wheels. How thick a the, plastic did it have to be? Well, back then, and I know you've seen some of them because there was some of them still in rock crawling. They just, we never got to finish it to where it was a product fit to do the type stuff that you were doing back then, let alone what they're doing nowadays. Okay. And so, but in, in dirt track racing, the cars were constantly smacking the wall or hitting each other, and that would break the suspensions, you know, because they tried to make everything so lightweight, make the car fast. Right. So we designed a plastic wheel, barrel, V-lock that would absorb the energy of those crashes instead of the suspension and the cars getting all tore up. So the guys could literally crash into the wall and wad the wheel up and not tear their cars totally up, come in, put another set of wheels and tires on and go out and finish the race. Well, a guy works all week to race on the weekend. He don't want to be crashed in the heat races and not be able to run the big race. So it became a big advantage and not only that technology of saving cars and races, but injuring of the drivers, but also we built such a perfectly turning straight wheel. You might not think about it, but a wheel turning a hundred miles an hour, let's say that was three ounces, four ounces out of weight. You know, I mean, how far out of weight could some tires be nowadays with these big things? Right. If you imagine that turning at 100 miles an hour and you're trying to drive down the road and it's vibrating so bad that your vision is blurred. And a really great example of that is talk to a drag racer who has raced a top fuel dragster and they run too low air pressure and the car just shakes violently and you can see them. You know, you slow down the speed of the, the drag car running. You can see that tire wadding and you can see the, tar, the whole entire car start to shake. And it either blows the tires off or the guy has to let off the throttle because he can't see you to drive down the track. So now we have these race cars that are racing on these big half-mile racetracks. And they're running 100, 120 miles an hour. And that vibration would cause the tires to wear regularly, heat up regularly. The heat from the brakes would transfer heat through. I know people have seen in NASCAR where they claim they drove the brakes so much that they melted the beads of the tires. Right. Well, in dirt track racing, we, the heat in the tire, because it's dirt track racing, soft rubber, you know, you're trying to keep the heat at a certain temperature so you don't prematurely wear the tire out. Well, the heat from the brakes would transfer right through the steel wheel, just like it did of the NASCARs into the racing wheels. And with the carbon fiber injection molded wheels that we built there at Marsh, never had that problem. The heat would not transfer through that wheel at all. The tires would run at least 20% cooler. So they got more laps. They got more control over their car and over their suspensions because everything was a lot more in tuned. So racing, the whole deal about racing was evolving. Uh, it's been a, 
a ride on a train all the way across the country uh, over 40 years of this. And the dirt track was first 23 years. And, you know, toward the end of Marsh, um, when the original Lyle Marsh uh, ended up selling the company. And, of course, you know how that goes when original owner leaves that things start to go. And right. I put in 23 years there. And it was time for me to change. Uh, even though we had won short track, NASCAR short track asphalt championships with Larry Phillips and World of Outlaw championships. And it was a really great experience in the dirt tracking. And before we Marsh had kind of went down, we'd started into the off-road racing, which led me into meeting you at one of the ARCA events in, what, the late 90s? Yep. And, you know, so our relationship has been forever. And, uh, and back then, we were building steel wheels and competing in all the ARCAs and back then the Super Crawl. And, uh, There's pro you know, rock. wheels have yep. – it's just gone – far from where we were i mean from strapping the ice chest down in the back of the car and that was legal for competing <laughs> to you know the two hundred thousand quarter million dollar race cars that we see today built that competed koh here in just a few weeks exactly so you know as my progression through all that we had developed um relationships with a company in california that uh, was a stamping facility and a rim rolling facility because we didn't have that here in Arkansas. Uh, we had, you know, did the best we could to jerry-rig everything up until that point that we needed to get into major manufacturing. And so we went out there and made contracts with, uh, back then was called NCI, which is the backing for Allied Wheel Raceline okay. and U.S. US Wheel. Um, and so through the process of working at Marsh, we had developed centers and we had developed rim shells and we had developed outer beadlock rings and inner beadlock rings through NCI in California. And so when unfortunate that Marsh went down, uh, I had a, I received a phone call from them saying, well, Greg, you need to come out here and let's, uh, let's fire up a racing division out here now. And so at the time, I was, uh, I had kind of got out of racing for a little bit because I'd been in there a while and thought, well, what the heck? California was never the place I wanted to be. And all the traveling I did for years and years, that just wasn't the place that I thought I'd ever end up. Right. <laughs> and even though I really haven't ended up there, my home is still Arkansas, where I talked to you today from. California was where I needed to go to stay in the industry to because I didn't have a college education. I, you know, grew up in a, a home that, you know, it was a, both parents were working all the time and, you know, it was tough. So I didn't have that advantage. And so the racing was a door open for me at a young age that fired me up and pushed me to where I was at that point. So I thought I could do this. I can go out there. I can start a division from scratch. Um, and, and granted, this was in off-road racing, which I hadn't been in very much yet. So luckily, a few relationships that I had from Marsh, for sure with Big Rich and uh, all the rock crawling events that you've promoted over the years, which I don't even know if you have an accurate number of just how many rock crawling events that you have actually put on. But between between the off-road racing, 
the Dirt Riot style racing, off-road racing with Vora, Dirt Riot racing, and then the rock crawls over the 20, 20 years plus one because of the one event, the first event we ever did. I estimate that it's probably close to 350, somewhere around there. Wow. I've never sat and tried to figure out exactly how many there are. I don't know that done. you could. Yeah. Because <laughs> people, people have asked me many times, well, how many races or shows have you been to, Greg? A lot. <laughs> and I don't, I, I, yeah, I said you'd have to get a U-Haul truck to put all the badges and some paper I've got because, you know, I've been on dirt tracks from the East Coast to the West Coast through the 20-some years that I was at Marsh and, you know, like we were talking, I went out there in 2000 and started Allied Wheel. That's all we were then, Allied Wheel. They built trailer tires and wheels, and they were just starting into some aluminum stuff. So, And so when I got out there, go ahead. Um, before we get too far into Raceline, there was, Marsh Racing Wheels is still was around in the early 2000s. Is that correct? Wasn't that guy named Chenoweth uh, yeah, or somebody um, yeah, like that? Uh, uh, unfortunately, yeah, uh, uh, Brent Channelworth, which yeah. is a good friend, I went to schoolmates. I mean, we all knew each other. We all grew up together. And at that time, the person who had bought the company from Marsh uh, wasn't a very good manager and kind of drove it into the ground, unfortunately to say. There wasn't nothing I could do about it or Brent. Right. And I got the opportunity to go to California. And during the transition of, of Marsh, uh, Brent actually ended up with the helms of it and tried very hard, but it just, uh, it just never went again. It just never, um, they built great wheels, but you know, it got down to where Brent was doing stuff pretty much on his own. And that's hard and, to do. Um, yeah, it is. And unfortunately he had what was called a widow maker. And I remember the phone call, the, you know, hours after it happened and, um, just, you know, life moves on. The clock does not stop ticking. Correct. You know, we go on through this crazy time with COVID and everything, but the clock doesn't stop ticking. And, you know, what's so great about it, neither does the heart of the off-road industry. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've uh, we've all came through this, I feel like, um, stronger. We, we've survived very well, and um, we all have a lot to be thankful for. And uh, I'm looking forward to whatever type of normalcy that we're going to end up with after, through all this stuff. And uh, I hope it is this year. I hope it is in much from now. Um, but there's just a lot of unknowns. Rich. Right. Yep. You know, I know you're scheduling your events and I know you're scratching your head and you're making phone calls and, you know, we're all trying to figure out, you know, what shows and, and well, are they going to shut those shows down? And, you know, right now I think they have Parker this weekend and Correct. then I think KOA is like two, three weekends after that. And um, I, I hear all kinds of things, and I really don't know for sure. You know, we're, we're trying to get all our plans lined out. But it, it's a different world that we work in in 2021. Absolutely. Um, with shows. And I, I'm not sure. We have all been pushed indoors. And that has helped us with the Internet sales and stuff like that. But. As most of us that are hearing this uh, or know us know that the heartbeat of this off-road industry is like it just can't be stifled. And um, these right footers that we deal with day in and day out, it doesn't matter what it is. If there's a green flag 
or there's a challenge or a dare, it's on. Let's go. And that's the great thing about this industry. And I guess that's why I've been in this industry for so long. You know, when I ended up at uh, uh, Allied, uh, here I am with a, at that time, we had a million and a half square foot facility pulling raw parts in from one end and shipping fully palleted, semi-loaded wheels out the other end. It was, wow. I couldn't believe what was before me and what I had abilities to do. Uh, however, everything changes, and that changed within the first year of being there. And not only did the company change and had to downsize because of internal struggles, we had to, we were still in the model and trying to build up a aluminum type division for the company, which was named Raceline. And in the beginning, it was just the two-piece billet nice stuff that you see on show cars. But then I started working with a German that was actually the same German that was working with Walker Evans to build his cast reel. And so the Germans built the best low-pressure casting machines in the world. And there was five of them sitting in Riverside, California. And so when I figured out what to try to build a cast wheel, and then when I got there and met the engineers and found out that uh, that was where Walker was building his wheel, I thought, well, I'm ahead of the game. Man, did I not realize how much stuff there was involved in casting wheels. <laughs> was the, now was um, was was Walker building? He was his he wheel. He was just getting started. But it was and it was, was just, just for himself at that point, wasn't it? It was kind of, but it's the wheel that he developed and sold and marketed. Okay. Um, and the difference was that I was stuck in a 15-inch age, and because Walker at that time was still hooked up with the tire companies, he knew what was coming down the road. Right. He knew the 17-inch tires were coming. He just knew it. And so he went right straight to a 17-inch wheel, and I built a 15-by-10 wheel which was the rock crusher, which was very successful, but just wasn't, you know, I'm, I, my timing and being new to the industry, I missed that shot. And so of course, immediately I backed up and built a 17 inch monster in 2004, which is the wheel that we see nowadays. The original 233 is built the same way today as I learned how to do it from the Germans, this German engineer, which was, I don't know, he was, twice my age then so he'd been casting wheels all his life and so he had taught me things like uh, temperature of the material before it goes into the mold temperature of the mold temperature of the material part after it comes out of the mold and what you're supposed to do with it while it's in that initial stage of setting and so and what i mean by setting is like you sitting down and getting comfortable in your chair Right. You know, you sit down in a new chair, you're kind of wiggling around, kind of getting it. Well, that's the way everything is that's cast. When it comes out of that mold, there are just so many fine little details that you have to pay attention to when you want the wheel to do a certain thing. You know, DOT has learned that they can operate within these parameters every time. And they can build a DOT wheel that passes the test. And all we did was take and tweak those things. I don't know how much of it Walker did because I didn't transfer my notes and you know what I mean? They didn't transfer them. I just paid attention a lot. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, the you know the the company was hired to build us the best wheel they possibly could. I was just lucky to learn a lot and happened to be there when a lot of things were being figured out. So I learned a lot of things immediately. And then once I took the wheel to market, I learned even more things about it. And so when unfortunately, you know, casting in the U.S. kind of went down because everything was made overseas. Um, that kind of took all the ability to hands-on things and change things. So when push came to shove, uh, Raceline was one of the last ones to take over to Steve to have their wheels built. Right. And one of the agreements we made with that company was to use the German machines because we'd already had really good success with them. And so they did, and that's where our whole total line is built mostly out of these type machines. They, they've been moderned up because we're talking about 15 years ago. So it, it, it's a technology that has evolved so much in, in from my first emissions to casting to <laughs> what it is now. Uh, I have personally been to China one time and seen one of the casting plants that casts 30,000 wheels a week. Jeez. And so, and, you know, the plant is two football fields wide and a half mile long. <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, I, I remember the feeling being much like it was when I first walked into Ally in 2000. And just in awe of just the capability of what was, could be done. And so here we are now, you know, through the whole process at Raceline, and developing the first RT233, and you know, you know as well as many people out there that still are running the very first wheels we built, and and what a progression from there until the first KOH race. Well, once they introduced speed to the off-road guys, holy cow, <laughs> it really kind of went nuts. I don't think anybody realized it. You know, I can remember being on the lake bed with the OG13. Uh, I had ran into uh, one of the racers. It was JT Taylor. Ran into him at the gas station at Apple Valley. And I go, man, what are you doing down here from Colorado? And he goes, I'm headed out to the Hammers. We're going to uh, we're gonna go out there and talk about a race. I go, oh, a race at the Hammers? And he said, yeah. And I go, all right. So I trailed out there. I was coming back from some show that I was at. So I went out there and... Got out there on the lake bed, you know, back then you just, it seemed like forever to get out to the middle of the lake bed because you hadn't been out there very many times. It's just like. Well, yeah, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a great road. Like you everybody know, bitches about the road at? now. <laughs> back then the road sucked. Where's JT going, man? I was like, what the heck? He just, you know, I kept waving his hand. Come on, man. <laughs> and so we finally get out there and they're all sitting out there and there's the campfire and they're all sitting out there. And of course they're drinking beer and, and talking trash and, you know, they, they got after it pretty good there, arguing about who could do what. And directly, man, I mean, I'll say it. The beer cans went down, and the guys went and got in their cars and turned the lights on and took off. <laughs> and I headed back to L.A. And a couple of weeks after that, Dave and, and uh, Jeff called me and said, hey, I think we're going to do this. Do you want in? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that was the start of KOH. But, you know, be before that, with all the, you know, rock crawling and all the stuff that you did and all the events and the progression of the vehicles is, you know, Jesse Haynes and 
probably one of the most premier rock crawlers that there is, you know, uh, Cody Wagner now. Yep. The vehicles that these cats build and, and bring to your events and get in the positions that they get in. I, I've stood there and watched people in awe. <laughs> Just how can that thing do that? And then wonder, man, I wonder what mine will do which has just ignited everybody. You know, when the JK came on the market, Save the everything industry. just blew up. I mean, everything blew up when the JK came on the market because we came out with the 232, narrowed it up and got the backspace right for, you know, you could put up to a 35 or a 37 on the JK without a lot of suspension stuff. And so that just went crazy nuts and which has opened up a lot of other doors that, Quite frankly, I never thought I'd have to go through. And you might ask, well, what door is that? Yeah, exactly. Well, we're taking a wheel that is not DOT approved. And we are running it on a car on the highway with family at 75 miles an hour to go to the Walmart. Because everybody's you know, got to have a beadlock because that's what the that's what's that's happening in competition. Just, yeah. Same, and I'll guarantee you. And John would have told you the same thing in his interview that right about in there, everything just went nuts as far as the off-road industry. When that JK came on board, I mean, it just the aftermarket industry, everything just went nuts. But it opened up a can of worms for all of us because we were all used to just going out and beating up our junk and taking it home, putting it in the garage, and then working on it during the week and getting ready for the next weekend. It wasn't something that we drove every day. Right. And so now we have cars that we drive every day. So that brings in a lot of problems with B-locks. And I, uh, in this industry so long, I have unfortunately witnessed bad events. And... It is something that is stuck in my mind and my heart and my soul so much that anything and everything that we do that I'm involved in, and the company too takes it serious too, because they've got to experience some things at races and rock crawling events. And so it's serious business to make sure that people don't have problems because of our product. And so I, there's not a person on the planet that I think could say they've seen more broken wheels than me. And I don't care whose company wheel it is. If I hear of a wheel breaking, failing, I just want to go and look because without looking, you just don't learn. Right. And a lot of people sit on their hands or their phones and never go to the races and really see the nuts and bolts of what is going on. And that's something that I learned right from the get-go with Lyle Marsh. It's uh, an attribute that will be with me the rest of my life and every aspect of my life is to pay attention to the details and always make sure that whatever you do is one, the best you can do it, but two, is the safe, that your objective is for everybody to arrive safely. And so, you know, we've gone through a lot of changes with just little fine details to tune the wheels in so that the amount of wheels that we sell that run up and down the road is astonishing to me. You know, people ask me, well, what's the big deal, you know, about DOT and why the B-Lock's illegal? And, and I go, well, I personally have never seen a law that says a B-Lock is illegal. 
But I have seen the law state that any wheel operating on a publicly funded road must conform to DOT ramshell shape configuration. You can tell I've said that a lot because I got all words out pretty fast. <laughs> that is the law. And so where the law gets crossed there, or the DOT, which is one of the most unregulated things there is until there's some major catastrophe. And right. luckily, everybody has kind of got it together to where we haven't had that with B-Lots. Um, fortunately, and I'm knocking on wood because, you know, we build it as best for a consumer to install himself without problems as probably anybody in the industry. Um, I'd agree. We, I mean... It's amazing, you know, through this Cobrick, you know, the company went through changes just like everybody has. And we all have found ourselves, me sitting on my couch, selling wheels and doing emails, being bored to death to buy a bird feeder to keep me entertained. Because <laughs> I can't stand watching TV all day. It's just Jeez. nonsense. And so, you know, it's been adjustments for all of us. And, you know, we had to change our marketing strategies and, you know, through the whole life of the 20 years of Raceline now, which is our name brand, there's been a lot of changes. You know, um, Raceline is, uh, of course, all the fame from KOH and King of the Hammers and We Rock. And, you know, working with a lot of organizations, Raceline has been around a while that we've got some really good partnerships out there. I love the fact that uh, you and I have been together, I don't want to say how many years because it gives away our age, but... <laughs> I remember your son being a little whippersnapper, and now him himself has become a power in the industry and has got things going in the right direction for the industry and in an area that wasn't real strong but had so much to offer. Sand Hollow is becoming one of my favorite places. You know, there's a lot of places that it's funny that the West Coast guys never get to see and the guys that travel with We Rock get to experience it firsthand. And that's that's one of the cool things about your program now is how We Rock expands across the states. And so you have guys that get to tell stories now on one coast against the other coast going, yeah, I tell you what, you come back here and you try that stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and then the other ones, and, and, and that makes it so much fun. And it seems to me with everything going on that everything is on the upswing for the uh, rock crawling. I know that when the speed got introduced, it pulled a lot of our big name guys out of rock crawling and, and got them into the, the KOH scene, which right. has expanded into so many other scenes. But the rock crawling is starting to come back, and I, I hear people all the time calling me and telling me about being at one of the events, and I need to have some of them put on our events. You know, it's just the Raceline program is, is good for the company, has grown so big that it is uh, it has become a handful for me. Personally, right. and, uh, you know, through this COVID thing, we changed our processes and we actually, for the first time, started retailing wheels and giving extra discounts to warehouses because it just it just seems that everybody's sitting on their couches. And so the program has been very successful and we've done really well. And uh, it amazes me the questions that I get. And it amazes me. And, and, and this goes both ways. It amazes me the questions that I get sometimes from the beginners. And it amazes me the questions sometimes from the guys that's been doing it forever. 
And the difference sometimes is not so much. And that tells me that people are doing the same thing, like the trail riding. You know, gosh, is that grown big? You know, these overnight trail riding events and stuff that we get involved with too. We have, we're involved in several programs all up through the uh, West Coast. That you can take a three day, a seven day, a two week, whatever you want to do. You know, there's awesome things out there like Jeep Jamboree that we've been involved with. And they do an awesome job with the introduction to people into trail riding. Yeah. And, you know, Raceline through the whole thing has been involved in all those programs. And one of the things I've always pushed is to make sure that they had knowledge about what they were doing with uh, our product and with tires. Because of my experience working with dirt track racing, I learned a lot about how to make off-road tires hook up and work real well, too. And so that's been a great pleasure to help the guys figure out that zero pounds of air pressure don't mean it's going to hook up better. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I tell everybody, you know, it's, it's, it's a fine line to run on top of the fence. And if you can ever get to balance on that fence, you're going to have a good time. And so that's what you have to work for. And don't get too radical too fast. Don't lean one way too fast or the other way too fast and take a progression. And, you know, because there at first people were just bailing off and stuff and you would just, you know, I had people calling me mounting tires over their outer ring and entering onto the inside of the wheel and then wondering why their beadlock wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a progression. It's, it's a gosh, you know, guys like me and you, we can sit around a fire and tell stories all night long and just laugh and carry on. It's, um, it's the same, same for the Curry boys. I yeah. mean, <laughs> all the way back to senior, unfortunately he's no longer with us, but golly, the stories of senior, uh, I mean, that does give our age away. So so true. So let's talk a little bit about alternative types of tire bead adhesion or how... Uh, Reten- ret- retention. Retention, that's the word, retention. Hard, yeah, hard word for me. It's got a lot of letters. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the, so, yeah, there, you know, um, probably the most famous is Hutchison. Right. You know, other than just the true beadlock of what you see now, which... You know, nobody really knows the story, and I only know it as I know it. You know what I mean? Because I experienced what I experienced. But I know that I watched all the other beadlock companies come online well after I was building my first sandcastle ring. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they just reversed engineered it, basically. Some of them got got ahead of us, to be honest about it, when I was at Marsh. You know what I mean? They just – the West Coast – God, if I'd have been in the West Coast when I was 14, there's no telling what I could have done. Um, it, 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 there's no doubt that the West Coast give, gave me the ability to have access to uh, a lot of instruments that I, I never had in Arkansas. I mean, when we were in Arkansas, we're down there in the shop with a welder and a grinder and a big pry bar. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and trying to develop stuff. I mean, I can remember one time when I was working with IMCA, which is an organization of race cars, I don't know, 7,000 cars deep that race all the way across the United States. And it's the same rules everywhere for that one class car. And so they wouldn't allow us to run B-Locks. Even after I went to NASCAR and got NASCAR to do it, I could not get them at IMCA to let them have B-Locks. And so we, here's 7,000 cars 
that we need to figure out a way to dominate by keeping the tire on the wheel. So we're out in the plant, and Lyle is drilling holes and sticking valve stems. I don't know, you know, back to my idea where I had drilled the holes and welded the nets. He thought he could install those valve stems after he put that outside bead, mounted it, dismounted it, popped the back bead off, stick your hand in there and put these valve stems in. And that would keep the tire on, and it wasn't a beadlock. But it took you all day to mount it. Right. And I'm like, wow, why don't we just stretch the safety bead bump? Why don't we just go down there in the lathe and make a deal and make the safety bead bump? You know the little bump that the tire pops over? Yep. He goes, Malt, I think he figured it out. So we spend the next two days on lathe machining parts. We buy a, um, what they call them, a bead roller, aluminum bead roller, how you roll the beads in aluminum. Right. You know, put the big sheet of aluminum up in there. We went and bought one of those, and we modified it, and we put a semi steering wheel on the top of it so we could get leverage to turn it down. And we would we had a, a die we made it on the top and a die we made on the bottom, just like a regular bead roller has. But these were made to stretch the bead of that wheel up and put a sharp edge on it. So if the tire had an edge that it had to, you had to shove it over. Basically a lock edge, right? It is basically, that's right. Like we put in our aluminum wheels nowadays that we machine in them from the factory. Right. Um, we call it a double hitch in our wheels so that it hitches the thin bead tires and it hitches the thick bead tires. So you don't have that rocking plurging of air every time the tire rolls around hits the ground on some of So a lot of interesting things developed through all that stuff. Um, and, you know, once we stretched that safety bead bump out, you know, it took like, <laughs> it took 70 or 70 pounds of air to pop it out on there. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a game, you know, it's serious business. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if a person realizes it or not, but when they talk about PSI, that is pounds per square inch. So. Think of the size of an ice cube, old style ice cube, like you and I were used to that we used to pour in, you know, with the water. Right. You know, ice cube tray, tray, a one inch by one inch. That's a square inch. Imagine how many of those are in your tire. And then imagine at 30 PSI, how fast those would come out at you if that tire released. It, it, it's like a bomb. I don't know if anybody ever drove down the freeway as many miles as I've had. It's happened to me several times, but a semi lose a tire. Have you ever lost a tire on your rig? Oh, yes. It's Kaboom! <laughs> you think the friggin' bomb just went off. Had one in Mexico that that surprised me. He was going the opposite direction. We were heading out of Ensenada toward Tagati, and we were on a hill, and I was climbing the hill, and he was coming down the hill, and that tire blew right when it was next to the to the window of the Jeep. And I had the window down. And Shelly and I both jumped. I, I swear it was like we were trying to climb into the back seat, like, an ex, like we'd just driven by a grenade or something going off. It was crazy. So you can, you can only imagine the percussion of that hitting something. And so that's why, you know, um, when we developed that wheel, we put stickers on the wheel that said, 
mount wheels in cages. Wheels can kill you graveyard dead. And put it right on the wheel. That's how worried we were about people doing stupid things. We never had a problem. We, uh, we dominated because in IMCA, I don't care how good a wheel deal you had with the competitor. You had a right rear marsh wheel on there. It was called a stage two wheel. I don't give a crud how many wheels they gave you. You'd buy our stage two wheel for every right rear tire you put on that thing because they would not come off. Um, and then, you know, of course, our competitors tried to copy us and them not knowing what Lyle knew as far as those little fine details, you know, and paying attention to things and just thinking that, oh, well, we can do that and just go knock it off. And they got a lot of people hurt. So bad that the association banned that wheel and made beadlocks legal. Hmm. So, you know, I can remember with the carbon fiber wheel. I was curious. I wanted to know what that thing would take in air pressure. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, back then we we uh, we would buff tires because we recap tires. So we would have this real fine rubber dust. And so I go and I get a wheel and I mount it on a tire and I set it up on the ground and I stack tires around it and I put a bunch of rubber dust on a piece of cardboard on top of this assembly. And I get me about 150 foot arrows. <laughs> You know, in a compressor with, you know, 160 pounds of air pressure. And I start in on this thing and I get it up to about 95 PSI and it finally lets go. And when it does, it looked like a mushroom cloud, like a nuclear bomb. <laughs> I could not believe it. It made such an impression on me that at a, at a race where I was at one time, the guys were out there and I know you've done it and I know I've done it. The spring ether to get a tire to pop out on a wheel. Oh, yeah. And they were doing it inside their trailer. And I'm like, man, guys, this ain't good. I'll, I'll catch you later. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and they didn't get it the first time. So they doused it up the second time. Well, they just got to bullshitting too much. And when they lit that second one, it peeled 10 foot off the top of that trailer. Just the percussion of that instant percussion of that thing letting go. Peeled the top of that trailer off 10 feet back. So... You know, that's a kind of people don't realize about PSI. Of course, you know, off-roading is such low air pressure. We're not too much worried about it. But, you know, it, it comes into perspective when you start thinking about driving down the interstate at 70 miles, 80 miles an hour. And you don't realize that um, if when you hit a chug hole or anything like that, where that instance of compression, low to the vehicle, hitting that hole and all that stacking up, you can spike air pressures. Uh, 30, 40%. And so those are just things people don't realize that when they, uh, you know, and beadlocks were designed for low air pressure. And people always ask me why we put a safety precaution deal in there that says 25 PSI max. Well, that gives you about 10 pounds, or I don't know. You, I don't know. We, I've never blown up one of the wheels. I put as much of our compressors would take, which I think is around 160 pounds. We're underneath the trailer with a hundred foot hose at race line and everybody looking at me like I'm some kind of yo-yo. But I never, all I ever got it to do was pull the ring back and make care. Okay. You know, and so at about 120 PSI, somewhere right in there, it would start leaking air. I wasn't going to go out there and see exactly when it did it. 
I was afraid the trailer might end up with a dirty side down. But, you know, that's that's how I am, though. I want to know, you know, extremes. So I have an idea of what, you know, because like I've saying, you know, people in the, they'll take like a one-ton truck that's got eight lug on it, and they want to go out in the dunes. They want to pull the trailers out there. They want to get better traction. And they want to lower the air pressure. And so they want to put a beadlock on this big, heavy truck. And I always try to tell them the basic rule of thumb for beadlocks is 6,000 pounds, 25 PSI. When you get above those, you start working You start working the heads of the bolts more than a 516 bolt can do. Now, we put, we have for sure figured in safety factor, okay? Oh, so yeah. I don't have a problem with the guys running 35 in a Jeep, you know, to keep their tire sensors from going off, which most of them don't do nowadays because they can reprogram. And so they ain't got to worry about running 35, and we all drop down to like 29 because we like the ride better. And so, you know, but that that's part of the problems you get. And then when you, you know, your earlier question about, you know, other types of tire retention. Did you write that word down? Retention? Yeah. Tire retention assemblies. And I'm, I was saying like Hutchinson's probably the most famous, and it's because of the military. And so with Hutchinson, what happened was the military, to handle the weight of these great big monster heavy vehicles, I mean, we're talking tonnages now, they had to come up with a bead package and an ability to change them in the arena, wherever they might be, okay? And so that's why most of the military stuff you see is all 16.5. And they ask, well, what's the difference in 16.5 and a 16-inch or a 17-inch? Well, it's the bead angle. If you'll notice on a, and, and, and those that, that are listening can check this out, uh, you go up to a 16.5 wheel, it has a 15 degree angle, which is the same angle as your kid's slide almost in the backyard. So the tire slides up out there easy and slides off easily. And so that's why there's no safety bead bump on a 16.5. Well, then why is there no safety bead bump on a 16.5? Well, because 16.5 was developed for 60 PSI plus, all the way up to 140 PSI. And that's for the military. Well, all right, now we got the tire to hold the military vehicles up off the ground. We got, you know, the wheels are holding up, but now we get a flat and the tire comes off and they can change the tires easily now because the, the wheels are two peaks. Right. So how do we keep the tire up on there? Well, then Hutchinson comes up with the, the sleeve First, I think it was metal, and then now it's rubber. And it's just basically a rubber, think of it as a rim shell inside the tire, pushing against the inside of the beads of the tire, pushing them against the outside bead of the tire, against the outside edge of the wheel. You understand? Inside, pushing outward. Yes. Instead of what we're doing with the bead lock, we're just clamping the outside bead. We're just making it part of the wheel. Whereas an internal lock like a Hutchinson, is with a rubber piece that fits in over the sleeve of the wheel. And so you throw the tire down on the back sleeve, you put the rubber in there, and stick the front sleeve on, you bolt it all down, it smashes it all together. Now at low air pressure or a flat tire, at least it wouldn't come off, and they're still changeable in the field. Right. That's Hutchison. And so they've made, you know, it's a big deal what they've done. Especially they for those heavier... Wheels. Heavier vehicles. Oh, yeah, massive you know. wheels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you're putting 40 ton or whatever some of that stuff weighs, golly. And so, you know, 
that's not something that we ever did because what our problem is, is that if we just run it like that, one, the wheel would be so friggin' heavy. It'd take two motors. Right. Okay. And the gearing, you know, that's how they do all that. I mean, the top, top speed on some of those vehicles, it may be 40 miles an hour. You know, because it's just a mass of weight trying to move and stop and and turn and all those kinds of things. So, you know, with other products that are out there today, the one most famous is the one from Australia that was called a Ston, which went out of business. And a gentleman by the name of Harry Llewellyn, who we all know real well, yep, um, turned it into a Coyote, and he produces these things and sells them in. That is an awesome alternative um, to people who are really conscious about DOT. Um, but it, it, it lies in the same problem as the Hutchison, as far as us guys that really go out and beat on our stuff. Because the outside edges of the rim lips are just not designed to take what we're doing to them. Whereas when we have that beadlock ring on the outside edge, we have a lot more to beat on that can be replaced. And so that's kind of the difference between one and the other. Um, and of course, you know, in the old days, it was all steel wheels, which are really hard to balance. And people always ask me, well, why are steel wheels so hard to balance? And it's, it's because you have a multiple assembled wheel. And what I mean by that is you have a rim shell, a center, an inner ring, and an outer ring on a B-lock and to produce those parts, they all start out as a flat plate piece of steel. And so the rim shell is cut in slit and to a certain width and a certain length rolled into what is called a hoop. And then it goes into a spinning machine and a spinning machine can either be a lathe or it can be a massive rolling spinning machine. Like wheels have been produced massively for, ages and it basically is a stage spinning machine and this thing is as tall as a semi-trailer and probably as long as a semi-trailer and it has all different variances of spinning parts and dies all the way through it and it just kicks the hoop from one end to the other and it comes out as a rim shell on the other end with the safety feet bumps and the rim shell and the core i mean it's it's quite amazing to watch it work and so, and to produce that in a lathe, they take that same hoop and they mount it into a lathe on what's called a mandrel. And then the lathe, as we all know, has tools that come out, fingers, I call them, and they come out and each tool does a different thing to that hoop to make it into a rim shell. Um, not that it's, a, it's, it's by no means a faster operation, um, maybe a little more accurate on the plus and minuses, which is the point that I'm trying to get to about steel wheels. So you have a rim shell that is rolled in either two ways, and it has a plus or minus between the inside bead of the wheel and the outside bead of the wheel to be perfectly rolling so the wheel doesn't hop and hobble and the tire run irregularly down the road and cause vibration or hops in the car. Yeah, because just off a little bit is going to create yeah, that exactly wobble. Right. That, that everybody's seen it. So you, somebody's got a so, bent rim. Yeah, you have a plus or minus on that. So when they actually manufacture it, okay? Now you take the center plate, which on steel centers goes through probably five or six different stamping operations. So one will hit that flat piece of metal and, and coin it. 
one will hit it and dish it. One will hit it and pop the windows in it. One will hit it and pop the lug nuts in it, lug holes in it. That piece has a plus or minus. Now when you take it over to the factory and you press that center into the rim shell and you align it, you have plus or minuses. In DOT, it's 15 thousandths. That's what a DOT regulation is, 15 thousandths. And so most steel wheels are tried to be built to that 15 thousandths. Now then, we enter the beadlock. Now we're cutting off the outer rim lip, and we're trying to weld the inner ring on with a plus or minus. And then now you're going to take the outer ring and bolt it down, and there's a plus or minus. And with steel wheels, you can add up all those plus or minuses, and guess what? <laughs> you might balance a square block, but it ain't going to roll across the floor very good. <laughs> True enough. Okay, so, you know, that, that's why cast wheels have just literally took over the market. Is because we can produce it in a matrix, and then we can take it out and put it in a lathe and machine it to a tolerances. Uh, I like to see the tolerances down in the 5,000. Because then I know if the customer's off a little bit with the tire or the plus and minus is off on the tire bead. Because trust me, everything in this world has plus or minuses. I don't give a rip what it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, all that stuff stacks up to be able to run down the highway. And so, you know, Raceline has took a lot of, we, we have messed with a lot of tires and wheels to get to a formula that is, as I said in the beginning of this interview, user-friendly. And... For the most part, I, I, I truly believe we do the best job in the industry. And I know that the plant and everybody that I work with, that, that they all strive for that. You know, and, and the things that we learn from racing, we have built into our wheels that we run on our off-road trucks that aren't off-road trucks. It's just a truck that you drive every day to the grocery store. But it has a wheel on it that has things that we've learned from off-roading so that if, hey, you're down there and you want to go hit the dunes or you want to go up the trail a little ways, uh, you don't got to worry about breaking a wheel, bending the wheel. Not to say that that can't be done because racers are racers and every right footer always has a problem with breaking something at one time or another. It just, it, just happens. And even on the street, we all know how the I mean, Department of Transportation, happen. you know, there's not a there's oh. not a highway department anywhere that can get a nice smooth road for more than a week. Well, Rich, you know, you drive as many miles as I do. Yep. And you're in a big rig and I'm like in a, you know, a T350 that I call Circus One. <laughs> and <laughs> it's the roads, the, and they are working on them and they are getting them better, but like, man, is it rough to run up and down Interstate 40 anymore? Or, you know, I haven't been up on 70, but, you know, as many miles as all of us travel, I, I wish they'd, uh, they would apply a little more Bondo to the road. <laughs> Try a so. Northern Louisiana. Going, you know, across there, I think it's what the thirty. Uh, and we all have our spots for the twenty that we just oh, literally hate. God. Yeah, yeah, and we'll have it so bad that we'll put it off forever, and then we'll finally go down and we go, "Wow, they fixed this." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, with the uh, race line, you know, from the days of Allied and Steel Wheels to uh, where Raceline is today, the official wheel score and. You know, we work with so many race teams and so many organizations and, um, you know, we've won championships all over the world on race line wheels. Uh, we sell monster beadlocks to 23 different countries. A funny note is 
I sell, and, and you know, everybody builds it overseas. It's the worst thing. I never wanted to do it because I never wanted to teach them what we know because those guys ain't never going to learn it. Even though we got some pretty bad mojo guys that off-road from China and Japan and all the way over there. But the problem is they're all set up about making money and their quality and they're so much better than they used to be. But I would just much rather do things here and don't know that we'll ever get back to that. But, you know, people ask me questions. Well, why is ET on everything? Why do we always got to figure out ET? Well, it's because China is on the metric system. And so when you go to buy wheels, which most wheels are built overseas, you know, um, they have ET on them and they don't tell you what the backspace is. And that's off-road guys. Backspace is like, what backspace are you running? <laughs> or, you need different backspace. You never hear the guys talk about offset. Ah, oh, you need a plus 40 on that thing. Now, you might go to some of the, the I call them rice burner cars, and now they'll talk it. Us, us hardcore guys out there running Chevys and Fords and Mopars, and we want to know what backspace is. And that's the back edge of the wheel to the back of the center. And that never changes, no matter how thick the beat of the tire is. And that's what makes the ET so complicated, is because you put an ET on a wheel, well, it's set up for a half-inch beat tire. And people, I don't know if they realize that uh, to get ET or offset, you have to go by the total width of the wheel, and that's outside edge to outside edge. And so let's say we have, let's just say we have a nine-inch wide wheel. It says it's a 17 by nine. You kind of got to add an inch because of the rim lip thickness. So right. let's say that nine, that 17 by nine measures 10 inches. So in ET or offset, that would be zero would be dead center in the middle, right? Correct. Okay. And negative would push the wheel out away from the car, and positive would suck it in toward the car. So a negative 12 pushes it out almost a half inch because there's 25.4 millimeters in an inch. Right. It's a number you got to live with nowadays, and you just will get used to it. I've fought it forever. (laughs) (laughs) But – it just makes it complicated. And so when you're, you know, addressing all these wheel problems, you know, ET on a beadlock is very difficult because, like I said, if you set it up for a, a half-inch bead tire, which is used to be the norm, you know, now they're, they're putting E-rated tires on our off-road rigs. The bead thicknesses are well over a half-inch. Right. And so that would change your ET. And so that's why figuring ET is going to get you in trouble because your ET changes to the tire bead thickness on a beadlock wheel. Backspace never changes. And so, you know, I get questions of that one all the time. You know, well, it says it's an ET. How do you know it's a three and three quarter? Well, on a beadlock, it's because it's based on a half inch bead. Well, I'm running it. I'm going to be running an interco, a swamper. That's a one-inch bead tire. Well, that just changed your offset. You moved it a half inch. Right. Okay. Your ET, your offset, but your backspace didn't change because the back edge of the wheel to the back of the center did not change. Whereas on the outside, because of the thicker bead of the tire, the outside of the wheel 
is now wider. Does that add up? Yep, that adds up. Yeah, so um, those, those are just some of the questions that I get asked, you know, um, and uh, and I'm happy to help with the information and podcasts and stuff because I love people being informed because last thing I want somebody doing is sitting there in their shop and Lord, it not be a race line wheel and it just not be the right wheel fit on the car because he was not informed. Right. And so I like to make as much information. I mean, that's why I make myself so accessible at Raceline. I mean, you can call Raceline Wheels and you can ask for Greg M. And most of the time you can reach me. Um, you know, first part of the week is a little tougher because everybody wants me. Or, you know, they broke their stuff on the weekend and they want to have it for next Friday. So they can break it again on the next week. <laughs> that's the racing. Yep. <laughs> you know, 40, I, you know, I started 14, I turned 60. So that's, uh, just 46 years. 46 it's a long years. time. It's a lot of races. 46 you know, years I, in the wheel industry. They tell me that I averaged at, at, at in the 20 years at race line, I averaged between 25 and 29 shows a year for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, a lot of miles and you know it too, cause you've been doing it just, you know I mean? You've been in this game digging in the trenches as long as I have, you know, it's, uh, it's really fun to sit back and kind of watch, um, kids that were, that, that were kids when I met them that are now big time racers that, you know, like the Kurt, the Duke with his boys, I can remember Kurt. I, I think it was one of my, I don't know. One of the races at Crandon, hollering at at Todd and him, get in the RB. I got a race, and just and then I see those boys. You know, one of them taking off, signing contracts with BFG to take off and do races all over the world, and the other one dominating. And and Kurt's still a bad to the bone racer himself. Absolutely. And so, you know, the progression and then rock crawlers, like I was talking about with uh, the Campbells. Yeah, Bailey. Bailey's now married and pregnant. I can't even. Believe oh, I that. go back. I go back farther than that. Don, the boy's father, Shannon Papa. I raced dirt tracks and won championships with him, hanging left. <laughs> I mean, several years in a row. He was he was bad, buddy, bad. And so, uh, the first time I met, uh, I, I first I had a rock crawling event. Uh, Don had come up to me and said, Hey, my son's rock crawling now. And of course, I remember Shannon when he was little, <laughs> wrenching on the dirt cart and working in the shop. And he comes up and says, Hey, uh, my son's got a rock crawler here. And Don was convinced that Shannon was going to win. Shannon says, I don't know. But Shannon did win that event. And uh, we sponsored Shannon for years, but that was in that transitional time between steel and aluminum. And I was just, I drug my feet about going overseas. Once I lost the, the, the Germans out in the Riverside that, and couldn't produce it in the States anymore. Uh, I just wasn't ready to, you know, I'm a little bit old fashioned, you know, from Arkansas. So I, I'm a little more old fashioned of keeping my secrets and, you know, got a little matchbox that I pull out with the Beatles to tell the weather. And so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a great ride and, you know, I'm getting toward the end. I mean, I, I don't know how many more years I can keep it up. Um, I still love it. 
I wish I had time or the ability to build wheels that I have in my mind. Um, luckily, with the uh, initiative that was put into me at a young age through Lyle Marsh, and uh, and just so lucky and blessed to have got to work with such awesome and intelligent people in the industry that not only told me but showed me. And when you're show when you're told and then showed, you should know. And I've learned so much from so many spark people in the industry. Uh, the sad thing about it is, you know, some of them are, you know, at our age, we're losing them every day. You know, we lost and people won't know it. But if, if you're an old dirt track guy, you're going to remember Tom Presley. We lost him last week and lost him to Coverage, dang it. And uh, uh, that man built a lot of, a lot of parks, a lot of wheels, a lot of steel wheels for a lot of people in the country going all the way back to the fifties. So it just sure trains trying. And um, I know we'll be back to racing because once I smell that feel, <laughs> you know, you just get that warm, fuzzy feeling and you just want to head for the starting line or a place where you can see it happen. And that's coming. We're going to get to do it again. And it keeps me driving hard, even though I have to sit here on the couch and kind of close the rest of the world off for a small part of my life. It's pretty much all by phone right now. and. I don't know. I know your schedules and schedules and we're all scheduling schedules and we're all hoping for the best. Yeah. All you can do is plan at this point. You know, yeah. You know, Raceline this year, well, actually last year we introduced a couple of new wheels, you know, double B locks and UTVs that have adjustable back spaces, just the wheel where you can have either a two and three quarter back space or a five inch back space. Hmm. And they're a double B lock. And people say, well, why would you run double B locks? Well, they're a little bit more expensive, but you think about it, how many times you break the back half on a wheel because you're running low air pressure and you just hit stuff so hard that you bottom the tire out against the wheel, against whatever it is you hit and break. That's how most wheels get broke. Right. Is they, they just get collapsed from running low air pressure and just taking the impact that is so hard. It's like smashing a solo cup. If you take that solo cup and you smash it, You'll see where your very first part smashes. It's real wide. Yep. But where it goes in toward the wheel, where that force is generated and cycles in toward the center, it comes to a point. And that point is right where it you know, drops into the valley on all wheels. It's not just our wheel. We push it to the max because you have to have the valley in the wheel to be able to mount the tire on a single B-lock. On a double B-lock, you lose a little bit of the clearance over the brakes because of the idea of the inner B-lock system. But you gain a world of strength. And you gain more control over the tire, even more so than a single B-lock, because if you can imagine, and, and this has happened, uh, there's a video that uh, Ian did when he was back hosting the TV show where he ran a UTV on these double B-locks he pulls it off the trailer and pulls it under the trail and jabs a stump or something right through the sidewall of the tire. Well, now they're out there and they're all got their film crews and they're trying to film this vehicle that he built. He calls me up and says, what do I do? I said, well, you run it. He goes, what do you mean? I go, when you stand on the gas, the tire is going to expand to heaven and hell because of centrifugal force and it's going to inflate itself. 
And when you stop, you're going to have just a moment. Yeah, that tire is going to be inflated that you can crawl over something. And then you spin it again. They filmed the whole crew. They, they did their whole film that day. <laughs> and he said he's, he said he'd be out on the deal and running hard, and that tire would just inflate. The car would be just like it always felt. And as soon as he'd get in the rocks, he'd spin the tire up, and then he'd crawl over the rock, and he'd spin the tire up, crawl over the rock. Uh, he said he couldn't believe he made it through the whole day. I can't either. I said, I couldn't believe you didn't break the axle on the thing. But <laughs> It just, you know, you have that control over that tire. And like I say, you know, desert guys that are racing, you know, and they pop a tire and the tire falls, you know, moves to the inside and starts wadding up. It creates heat. It's like taking your hands and rubbing your hands together and it creates heat. Well, that's what rubber does. And that's what disintegrates them. It also makes it very hard to steer it, turn it or accelerate. That's why we all spend a lot of time making the inside bead bumps where they retain the tires well. And for most applications in 17 inch at this time, a double B lock fits, fits only maybe 70% because of the size of the brakes. Okay. But you jump up to the 20 inch, which I think is where the market's going because everybody's releasing new 40 inch two tires. And so, you know, these new JLs, with all the clearance that they put on the inside of the JLs, now we can put a great big monster tire and wheel on there without a lot of modifications. And so a lot of them are jumping up to the 42s and putting them on the 20-inch wheels. Well, a double B-lock in a 20-inch, we have no brake clearance problems. And for the guys racing, which is we're building double B-locks for Lauren Healy's car to race the 42s at KOH right now. Oh, that was a secret. I just let that out. I can... Uh... I can it well by the time this thing it. by the time this thing it won't have our name on it. I hope he wins the race though. I'd be pretty good though. <laughs> At any rate, you know, he's seen the advantage of having a double B lock to where like if you're out on the desert and you're hauling butt, but you just came off the rocks and you punched a hole in the tire. But out on the desert, when you're up to speed at 60, 80, I even heard him out there qualifying at uh, over 124 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're at that speed, that tire is sent to heaven and hell massively. And so it inflates. It'll actually inflate up to, I don't know, I, I've, we've, we've messed with it a couple of times, and it's hard because it depends on the size of the hole to see how long once you stopped, how long the air would leak out. Of course, it depends on the side of the hole. If it's a, a small hole, it'll inflate up, and it'll stay fairly inflated. If those guys just hold buns across the desert and never even know they had a flat. Right. Um, so... You know, we developed a couple of different uh, B-locks, uh, one for the UTVs that's working really well. There'll be a bunch of cars at KOH on them this year. And then we built this forged heavy-duty double B-lock that enables people to have custom backspaces on these new custom buggies that, you know, uh, Mickey Thompson just lit, just released a, a brand-new 58. And they've released 54s and 20s. And so... All those guys, uh, I think it's called the Outcast in Moab, uh, built by Joe Riley. And it's a rock buggy. I don't know what you what moderation you would call it, but base, bad to the extreme. Uh, you remember how we used to have to winch up Upper, Upper El Dorado? Yep. This guy just pulls up there and just idles up it. It's just it's just gnarly what they can do nowadays with stuff. But that's where that double B-lock comes in effect for him also. He's running them great big tires. It just secures the tire and just gives them a lot more control. Right. So I know like the bouncers were 
were running with the with they the ran seventeen inch. Yep. But they were yeah. running. Some of the guys didn't even put valve stems in their tires. Uh, exactly. But you know that's mostly because they were running like that interco stuff. That's so you know you could put a regular truck on it and let the air out of it, and it wouldn't hardly look like it had a flat tire. Exactly. You know, I tell the guys all the time, once you get those mounted, take the valve core out, go out in the field, the cow field, and drive them without any air in them until you get them up to about 250 degrees. And then air them up to where you're going to race and let them sit. And what that does, it just stretches everything out and just makes the tire work a little bit better. And mm. so they can get away with that. But yeah, I've seen them let the Valcors out at starting line and, and just stand on the throttle. <laughs> but you can't always do that. Like you couldn't do that with a BFG because they're just not sidewall built like that stuff. Right. So true enough. But you can't run inter, you can't run Interco at 120 mile an hour. You don't think. Um, not if you want to be able to see afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So people, what, you know, I, I don't know if many people have experienced a bad vibration in the car that vibrated you so bad that you can't see the, you know, out over the front hood. Yeah, I used um, to run big bias plies on a Chevy pickup truck that I ran in the snow, and uh, uh, those big bias plies there were forty inch bias plies, and they were back. And this was back in the eighties, and it was uh, they were they weren't balanceable. Nobody could balance them. We tried to um, bubble balance them, and they were just, they were unbalanceable. I mean, you have 12 12 (laughs) inches or 12 ounces of weight on, you know, on one side and, you know, just. Well, it's like um, I said, you can can balance a square block, but it's not going to roll across the floor very well. Correct. (laughs) So, you know, it's an interesting concept, like I say, you know, and that's why the, you know, back in the Marsh days with the carbon fiber wheel, we just dominated so much stuff. you know, uh, we went from dirt track racing into mud bog racing. And I don't, you know, I don't remember if y'all remember all the heyday of the mud patrol. And, you know, when Tom Mintz wasn't in a monster truck, he was in a, a, a mud car. And um, we dominated that stuff because, you know, they had to generate so much wheel speed so fast, just like a dragster, that if the tire and wheel assembly didn't turn real good, that it would cause such a vibration that, they didn't know if they were heading straight down the track or heading for the other side. You know what I mean? <laughs> other than, other than the feel of your butt in the car, you know what I mean? You talk about driving by the seat of your pants. Yep. That was a sport where you drove by the seat of your pants because it, it was over so fast, you know, second and a half, you know, two seconds, <laughs> light the fire, kick the tire and hang on because <laughs> it was on. And the, you know, the carbon fiber wheels, uh, I remember an incident where I was at Steve Kinzer's shop. Uh, I don't know. Most people know Steve Kinzer from the world of outlaws. And if anybody's a racer, they know Steve. Kinzer's he was name. like, and, and they all back in the old days, they called me Marsh. Cause you know, it's like now they call me Mr. Raceline. Cause that's, I'm the only person they see. Cause I just travel. I just want to get there and meet people and try to get things figured out. And so he's like, so Marsh, why, why would I go to your wheel? And you know, I'm like, well, cause you like us. <laughs> he's like, no, seriously. And I'm like, well, um, I guess the easiest way is just to demonstrate. And he goes, well, what do I need to do? I said, well, I need your best wheel, the best brand new wheel out of the box you got. I don't mention names where it came from. And he brings it over there and says, that car up on the jack stands right there. And I said, 
mount that wheel on there. And I pulled me up a couple pieces of blocks of wood he had there and stuck me a pin on the end of it with a deal on it and turned that wheel. Trying to check the trueness. We're talking about a wheel that's 14 inches wide. And it knocked the pin right off. And so then I held the pin to show him that, man, the outside edge of this wheel is like, it's off half inch. And I said, what do you think that's like at wheel speed? And he sat back and got to thinking, him and Carl both. And I went, well, you're right. And I said, so is your wheel better than that? And I go, let's see. Brand new wheel out of the box, slide up on there, put the pin up on there. It never touched the pin. <laughs> and I go, that's the difference. Now then, let's go over to the scale. I went over the scale. We weighed their wheel, and we weighed our wheel. I'm six pounds lighter. Well, it's another interesting concept, a lighter wheel. Most hardcore racers realize that the lighter assembly is you can dial in better than a heavier suspension. Right. So on wheel weight in the dirt track days, we, we went to a chassis dyno where we locked the car down and put B-lock on the right rear, ran the dyno, took the B-lock wheel off, same size tire, everything, made sure everything was dialed in, but a non-B-lock wheel. And we quickly realized that the ratio was about 10 to 1. So what that means, for every pound of weight that is on a spinning axle, and we're generally talking about race cars and our everyday driving cars. Every pound of weight makes the car think it's 10 pounds heavier as far as accelerating, braking, or even turning. And they can understand about the, the weight taking horsepower to turn and the brake taking brake to stop it, but they don't realize about the turn. And I just go, well, you weren't paying attention when that guy came to your high school and gave you that demonstration with that bicycle wheel. And he spun that bicycle wheel up really fast. And then he held it with both fingers. And then he pulled one finger out. And the tire just sat there and spun. But he couldn't change the direction very easy. And it was because of the amount of weight spinning in a certain direction takes a certain amount of power to change that direction. So now you have, for every pound of weight, it's 10 pounds. As far as accelerating, that's pushing on the gas pedal and it going faster. Putting your foot on the brake and it's stopping quicker. And turning the wheel, which turns easier. And that's called unsprung weight. In the dirt track days, these guys were anal about it so far, they would gun drill their axles. Right. So it looked like a gun barrel. To cut the weight off the axle. Now that's at the center of the rotating mass. Can you imagine what the weight ratio is when you get out to a 42 inches, which is 21 inches from the center? Yep. It changes. You know, another thing that changes people doesn't realize is load rating. You go to the tire shop and you buy your wheels. You flip it over on the back. You're curious. You want to see what the wheel load rates. Let's just take an eight lug, for instance. You flip it over the back, and somewhere on the back, it's going to say anywhere from 32 to 3,600-pound load rating. Oh, man, my truck just weighs 6,000 pounds. I can put a trailer on it, man. I'm not going to be anywhere close to that. But I'm going to mount 42s on them. Oh, hmm. See, that make any difference. 
Absolutely. Well, it does. Yep. Now you've got a bigger wedge on the tire, on the wheel assembly. And so as best I, as best that we've been able to come to testing with uh, like standard laboratories with the companies that we work for, work with in China, where we test everything over there and we make them test it regularly, probably more so than most people do, especially on this B-Lock stuff. So that makes a, you know, a difference when you, when you start calculating the height of the tire versus every wheel that is built overseas until we started this new program was only tested to a 35 inch tall tire max for the OEM is 31. So OEM DOT test is 31 and has forever because of the one ton trucks, biggest tire you'll see on them, maybe a 29, maybe 30, 31. So with that load rating is that that height of tire. Now you've just uh, up to tire 10 inches taller. And you have to know that for every inch of height, you lose a couple percentages of load rating. That's the nearest that we can tell. And I know they're still trying to study it. And I know that's why, like with our 40, our brand new 20 inch Avenger B lock that we just released last year. That, by the way, we are selling the heck out of. And I know you've seen a bunch of them in the We Rock uh, crawling deal. Absolutely. Um, they were tested to a 49-inch tall tire. They We had them completely develop a whole new program to test to a 49-inch tall tire because I felt like load ratings were going to be so affected with these greater, bigger tires that I didn't want to. The last thing a wheelback manufacturer wants to happen is the dead gum center to come out. Right. That is just me. And I mean, that is the biggest pet peeve I have is never lose a center. Uh, people complain that I build them too heavy sometimes. And I go, well, you'll thank me when you don't knock it out of there. <laughs> you know, racers, it's always funny because racers, if racers made the rules, and you know this as well as I do, <laughs> we'd all be in left field, all the way out there by the wall where we couldn't see nothing or know what was going on because they all got their own opinions. And they all want it to be best to them. Don't blame them. I do the same thing. It's it's that gray area we were talking about earlier. Yep. <laughs> and so I love to operate in the gray area. I've done lots of things that operated in the gray area. Some we got away with, some you don't. That's part of racing. You know, I, I, like I say, I was blessed to have gotten to learn from some very smart people early in my career. And the biggest thing that you could that I would want people to take away is uh, detail and safety. Detail and safety will keep you from having problems through about anything that you work on. It's just information, which is what I refer to as details, and then safety by all means. So you're um, saying safety first, not the rock crawler safety third? <laughs> well, you know, we the guys build rigs to do what they do. Um, it in in the old days we were really lucky we didn't get a lot more people hurt. And I know you've been there just as much as I've been there. Cars rolling down hills and just literally emptying everything out of the car oh, yeah. and learning. Hey, you shouldn't put stuff in the car when you're going rock crawling. First off, you know th- stuff flying out and hitting spectators. I mean, we learned a lot. Safety is something that we don't take it for granted. And, you know, I get on people all the time, how come you don't wear gloves? What would you do if something happened and your hands got burnt and you had to use the bathroom for the rest of your life? Yep. 
all because you didn't want to put gloves on. What if a rock or anything, you know what I mean? Because, you know, they build safety equipment nowadays to handle most things we're doing. It's impossible to be totally prepared 100%, but, you know, your objective should be as best you can to be prepared for everything. And so, you know, little things like that. I remember when I raced uh, King of the Hammers. I've never got, I've never raced to race in my life in the whole career I've done. I rode in a lot of race cars. I had a lot of awesome experiences in race cars, but never, ever wanted to race. And in 2013, Terraflex came on board and with Kurt Hildebrand built a 2012 JK that we took to KOH in 2013. And we didn't really take it there to finish the race because the last two valleys would have destroyed the car's outer part of it. Only one car finished the race that year, but we took it out and ran it through the courses and raced and we're running way up there really good. The car was super fast. I think they ended up with 12 or 13 inches of travel in the front and 14 in the back and, you know, with the King Shocks and Rebay and everybody dialing this, this two-door short wheelbase Jeep in, you know, they clocked us at 101 across the back lake bed. Wow. So it was a uh, – I know that when I got out of that car – I was really just physically wore out, mentally wore out, and thought to myself, I'm not a race car driver. I'll stick to building the wheels. <laughs> and then went inside my motorhome and took a shower, come back out, turned on all the microphones. And that was the year we had the uh, volunteer party at KOH where you were in the taco eating contest. Against the Coles. Yep. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. That was the same day. I, so I raced KOH to the Everman Challenge and then took a shower and got a mic on, changed clothes and went out and put on that and just had a absolute blast. I've seen some videos and stuff. Uh, I think you can go to, what is it? V, is it called Vimo? Vico? Vimo. Some video. Yeah. And Tumpian uh, Off-Road. What was it called? Off-Road? I can't remember what the guy called it, off-road something. And you can see all those videos, you know, even back to the the first uh, backdoor shootout, you know, when the East wow. Coast and the West Coast came in there and, and we were all in the waterfall <laughs> backdoor with 5,000 people on either side hooping and hollering. That was a, that was a highlight. And, uh, and then, I felt, then BLM I felt good cracked that down. And BLM well, cracked down. And the made, whole thing yeah. changed. They they kind of sold Raceline out of the KOH scene. And, you know, we're just not a big corporate company. And I don't know if people realize that, but Raceline is one of the last family-owned wheel companies in the nation. The, every, everything else has been bought. All the names have been bought up. Right. Uh, they're all owned by big, big money corporations. Uh, and, and my problem with that is, is that they lack heart and soul. You know, they'll write checks for the, the sizzle, but they're not willing to get in there and, and prepare the steak or, you know what I mean? They're, no, they're, uh, they have they too just many don't layers. Crash roots and, yeah. and, and that's one of the things that I, I fear a little bit with some of the corporations now that have gotten used to their salespeople being at home and everybody being on the internet. And in the Alfred industry, it just ain't going to be like that. No, we're, you know, our, the off-roaders are more about relationships than people want it. People want to still touch, feel, taste 
they're not just looking at a flat screen and making decisions. I know a lot of the newer wheelers that are coming in love the electronic catalogs and go, okay, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this, and they do it all off of the internet. But I know what, the information racing, they get worries me. Oh, yeah. The information they get worries me. It's not like a warm body person like you and I who have experienced a lot of things explaining the nuts and bolts. Uh, I, I fear that the internet doesn't explain the nuts and bolts in a manner. Um, I mean, I, I think you can get on Google and search about anything you can fix. True. But when you pull out the tools and you start going at it, there's things involved that had somebody been able to explain something to you, it would have saved you a lot of time. Some of it is good. I just wonder going forward how the communication of information will be handled on the internet in a way that everybody gets correct information from experience and not so much a book. That That's kind of what I hope. And that's why when I do these events, and I, every event I do, we usually always host some kind of a deal where I'll get up there and talk about wheels and try to explain to people you know, why you run a narrower wheel instead of a beadlock. Well, that's hard to understand coming from a guy that makes a living selling beadlocks, but there is logic to it. And explaining to them why a tire works better on a narrower wheel than a wider wheel. Why they pinch the sidewalls so much out of tires when they run them on wider wheels because the tire doesn't have the ability to wrap around the wheel. It only has the ability to fold up when you put it on too wide a wheel. And when you fold the sidewall up, that's usually when you pinch the sidewall and it looks like you just took a knife and just sliced the whole sidewall out of the tire. Absolutely. Yep. That, that's a pinch. That's not a cut. That's where you folded the sidewall together. And if you look at about in the middle of that, you'll see like it's a, it, most of the time it looks like a little triangle. And that's where it actually folded it and pinched it enough that it purged the air out that little tiny hole enough that it just boof, blew the whole air out of the fold. Right. I've been done on slow motion, you know, take a can. I mean, these are things that, that I go out and do, I have done is put a high speed camera on it and watch it. Uh, it's like one of the examples I give people, they go, well, what is the right air pressure to run? There's a lot of variables to that, to what the quote right air temperature is. The best thing analogy I always give them is that, you know, when you get wheeling, even if you're not going wheeling, go out to a rock and pull the tire up on the rock with VOT air pressure, 32 PSI. And even have somebody else drive it up on the rock and you watch what that tire does. Now back that tire off that rock and lower the air pressure down 10 pounds and run it back up on that rock. And keep lowering the air pressure on that until you see that tire tread fold in so far that it closes up the tread. And most of the time, that's gonna be in the teens. Right. Unless it's some kind of interco tire. You know what I mean? It's thick sidewall that, like you said earlier, you can take the Valcor out and run around in it. Most DOT radial tires aren't capable of doing that. And so I always say, you know, that's the best thing I can tell you. And then once you figure that out a little bit, then learn to drive the car. And don't think this because every little thing has to be another part put on the car. Uh, learn to drive the car first and get good at driving what you've got before you try to move up to the next stage or the next bad trail. Uh, I'm not saying don't go up there and test the water a little bit, but 
you don't necessarily want to go up and tear your stuff up all the time when you know you're in over your head. And most of us, well, I, I'm going to retract that. <laughs> I'll say it in a different way. Most people will just go ahead and raunch on it <laughs> yes. and break their stuff because they are, they're constantly, everybody wants to test themselves. And so that's another great thing about it. That's why aftermarket does such a great business. I'm just lucky enough to be in wheels sales because wheels is the number one aftermarket thing put on vehicles from the get go. That's the first thing people do. And so that's why when I designed the monster, I wanted to build a center style that would be around for a long time. And I think it's pretty much could be called a classic now. It's been around almost 20, almost 20 years. Ain't made it quite 20 years yet, but there are literally thousands and thousands of them out there. And the cool thing about that when we were making it is one of the things I learned was this thing called a diamond cut. And that's a razor thin cut all the way across the center. And what that enabled the wheel to do is no matter how dirty that wheel was, as soon as the lights hit it, it would shine like a polished wheel. Hmm. And so that's why we were so photogenic. And if you look at the photos, most of the time the wheels light up. And it's because of that diamond cut. That's back to those little fine details. All right, well, we want to have a really good wheel that's tough and safe, but we also want to have a wheel that people want to put on their vehicles. And now with this translucent powder coat stuff that they've gotten to where they can actually do it in a manner. So they've been doing it for a while, but it's not been done in a form where you could consistently produce four wheels that matched every time or go back and build a replacement wheel. Mm-hmm. They could do four wheels, but if you ever mess one of them up and had to redo it, you couldn't. Right. It, now they've got to be the same batch. Right. Yeah. Now they've got to refine where they can go back and redo it and make the wheel match. It's uh, it's come a long ways. And so you add that into the fix with the JL craze. And now the vehicles, um, and I don't want to say, I, I don't, I don't mean any bad tidying to it, but the mall crawlers are a pretty important business platform also. I guarantee you there's a lot of suspensions, a lot of wheels, tires, decals, bolt-on accessories. I never see the off-road. True. But yet, it's still part of our industry, and it's an important part of our industry. And so, you yeah, know, I don't give them too the much cool of a stuff. I don't give them too much of a hard time, even though I've seen some stuff that I just have to shake my head and go, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I can think back to people who are gone now that we crawled with and think what they might say when they see some of this stuff nowadays. And just, you know, you got to wonder, you know, hopefully you and I will be around another 20 years and we can look back and go. I remember when. <laughs> I, just just not too long ago, you know, we've been down on the beach here in in southern Gulf State um, along uh, the uh, – well, we'd spent some time in Florida and then along Alabama um, over here to uh, Texas, and we're down in the Corpus Christi area, and everybody builds these big, big – I'm going to call them beach trucks – and they're really high lifted, lots of chrome, but I've seen them with lit wheels. <laughs> they have LED, circular LEDs on the inside of the wheel. <laughs> and I'm like, what I the hell the first, is that? I remember the first time I seen a 36 inch two piece aluminum wheel at SEMA. Hmm. <laughs> 
I remember the time I seen the first set of gold plated wheels that were like, uh, I think they were 15 grand a wheel. Wow. And they were just like, you know, gold plated 60 grand for set. And I think back then they were like 22s. They weren't monster wheels back then. You yes. know, race lines had so many opportunities. You know, we've, it, it, so much has gone by that you can, that you come up and remember. But, you know, Raceline has been on movie sets. My what is the the Miami Vice show, and we've had lots of opportunities opened up for us uh, because we've worked so hard at it, and and we keep that up. And uh, we have people there now that are coming up the ranks that uh, I think are going to be just as fired up as I've been for the last twenty years to rock and roll this stuff. And they have their ideas. You know, uh, Raceline started Conse. And for those of you that haven't had a chance to be introduced to Conse, you should go on Raceline Wheels and check out Conse, which is into the uh, drifting okay. market. Uh, we've won several national champions already in that. And so Raceline, you know, it covers a lot of spectrums of wheels, just your standard truck and SUVs. Um, of course, trailer wheels and tires, which is what we started in back in the late 90s. Right. And then with our two-piece program that was number one at SEMA for like the last eight years, that program is awesome. And then, of course, the racing program, which is, furnishes wheels for, I don't know, so many different platforms of racing that it, it's just mind-boggling from what we did in the very beginning with 15-inch steel wheels and 35-inch tall tires thinking we were on top of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, hopefully you can impart your wisdom and the knowledge that that you've gathered since uh, you were a teenager, on to those that will um, follow you at at Raceline. Um, well, hopefully. and I see them at the shows. I invite anybody that has questions to please come to us. I, I I make myself pretty available, and then at the shows that we do, I have no problem sitting down and drawing about wheels and helping you to. I don't want to make decisions for you. I just want to inform you so that you can make decisions based on what experience I have. And basically the experience I have is based on experiences of a lot of other people too. And so you and I, as, as people who have been in the industry a long time, that is our job now. It's, it's like being a grandparent (laughs) and you're, you've got to teach at your job now. Um, You know, and I hope I get a few more chances to, to develop some new products, but you know, the company has grown quite a bit in the last few years. And I think that when we come out of this crazy time that we're at right now, that it will expand because Raceline didn't sit on their hands during all this. We actively marketed and went after and didn't stop designing, didn't stop building, didn't stop ordering. And so our inventories are good. It's unfortunate about Long Beach right now with all the ships looking like a used car lot sitting out there and Jesus. nobody to unload them. Yeah. There was, uh, there was a number floated around a week or so ago that we had 60 containers of wheels on those ships. And, you know, you can figure about a thousand wheels in a container. Wow. So that's, yeah. And so it's, it, it's a difficult time. And it's not just us, everybody. It's a difficult time. The we're, where our advantage was is that when all this kind of took place, I pressed upon them to push forward and order wheels. I think I told you the story that 
you know, the Chinese were financing it. So why are we worried about them repossessing? True. So get the wheels over here. Let's take care of our customers and let's, let's do the best we can through this crazy time. And the guys have, have stood up and they took on the responsibility and, and the programs are working well as they could in the circumstances. So I look for Raceline to, to, to mainstream very soon. I mean, they're already available on tire rack and discount tires and Les Schwab's and, you know, ORW. And, you know, we already have a really awesome distribution. I think the, the advantage that we're going to have this year is that we we kind of knew that the off-road guys aren't going to lay down, that they're not going to stop working on their cars and they're going to need wheels. And that's yep. what we do. Yep. So we brought in wheels. And so... That's good because there's a lot of companies out there that people are waiting on product to finish builds and they're not being able to get the product. Oh, uh, well, I mean, go We're try to buy a UTV right now. Go try to buy a UTV right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, it's, and it ain't like they're out of a lot of parts. They're out of just a particular part that keeps them from releasing the vehicles. Yep. It's, uh, it's indeed crazy times, and I think America's waking up to um, that we need to be back to covering our own ASSs and and doing stuff on our own more than we're doing now. And I think everybody's doing that. I think everybody's stepping up that needed to step up. I think that uh, we're still the number one country. Absolutely. Despite Despite our faults and everything, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Agreed. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to the green flag. I just am. I was talking to the owner yesterday, or actually last night, and he's like, well, what do you think, Greg? And I said, well, it's like I told you, back in the beginning of all this stuff, these guys aren't going to lay down. We walk, ran their races last year. Score ran some of their races last year. There was a King of Hammer race last year. There is racing going on, and it's not going to shut down. You know, on the East Coast, and you probably know as much as I do because you do a lot of events back here, but you know, everybody did pretty well back here. They didn't practice much social distancing, but I never really heard anything bad happening, you know, with outdoor events and the warm weather. I think we're going to kick this thing in the teeth and we're all going to be at it here shortly. I and surely hope forward, so. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, we got a few other surprises coming out that I can't let everybody in on, but, you know, we we don't stop. I it just I'm I have been matiqued or taught or retained knowledge enough that I have all these ideas to build wheels. We'll just see how many of them I can get done before the the clock tolls twelve or whatever the comment <laughs> might be. Till we we uh, go off into the pasture until they send I us. I just off. look I just look forward to the next rock we'll be crawling. Yep, I agree. You well, know what I mean? So Yep. So Greg, we've hit uh, we hit the magic hour of two hours on the recording. <laughs> you said we would get there, we did, and that's not I a problem. You. you had a lot of great information. I'm I'm sure that uh, it was very educational. It was for me. There's a lot of stuff in there that I knew, but there was a lot of stuff in there I didn't know. And I appreciate you coming on and spending the time and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. I really hope that that we're able to socialize again this year here shortly. Hopefully uh, at Easter Jeep, 
we'll be, be all together there at uh, Grandpa's garage and having a good time, and that all this uh, this worry and sickness is behind us. Well, I, I I second that, and I hope that the ones who are in charge move it all forward and get us to that point. You know, the off-road industry has probably been the most rewarding as far as true watching families grow into to mature off-roaders. And it's just so family-orientated because of the trail riding and all the stuff, you know, I remember when the UTVs first came out, the words out of my mouth was, is, there goes the buggies and the sand cars, because now the guy doesn't have to listen to his wife complain about his crazy driving. He can just buy her own UTV, and he can go raise heck in his. There it is. And she can sit up there and just watch him be a goofball. Just another change in our industry that was interesting to watch develop, because I, I, I remember the first phone call from and i'm going over your two hours here brother no, and that's what good. happens but, it's all good um i remember a phone call from todd romano which most people remember from dragon fire racing but yep he's also you know the uh a trophy truck racer in the tonky truck and he had gotten a call from the yamaha people that they wanted to bring over a couple of new machines that they wanted him to build for baja and so he got these machines and started putting long arms on him. And he was kind of telling me at the progression of these things and saying that he wanted to be lock wheel for it. And when they finally got the first one and they finally started testing it, they broke everything they put on it for a wheel. They just <laughs> couldn't get anything to hold up. And this was in 2006 because, uh, or in 2005, because that was the first year that the Rhino came out. And I actually bought one. I have it here at my house. I've used it ever since then. Uh, but when I went down to Phoenix and they took me for a ride in one of these vehicles, I knew then that it was going to be a game changer, just like the King of the Hammers. It was such a dramatic change that was within so many people's grasp, as KOH was in the beginning, before the high-dollar stuff got involved. Right. And so... And that's the way racing progresses anyway, is that money eventually runs off all the poor boys. You know, we got to make rules, classes. Yep. But anyway, when that thing, when I went road in that thing, and then they took me out to their, uh, he took me out to the place where they tested them and showed me where he broke all the wheels. I said, well, let's break a wheel. I want to see what's going on. So sure enough. And it was a railroad crossing right across the tracks. And he's hitting it at, uh, back then, the top speed, I think they had it up to like almost 60 miles an hour. And so at 60 miles an hour, we hit the railroad crossing, and boy, it does. It just it just grenades one of the rear wheels. And so I take the wheel, and I take it back to the plant, and we design the first UTV beadlock wheel for a UTV in a 10-inch, or in a 12-inch and 14-inch for Dragon Fire Racing in 2006. And won everything, the Baja, best in the deserts, everything on those wheels with those. And then, you know, they went through the lawsuit over the door deal. Yep. That kind of slowed them down. And then in came, you know, the rest of the guys. And so it's what a progression that has been. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't tell you how many wheels we sold to UTVs. It's just because we kind of got in on it, we, uh, we picked up some great distribution across the whole country. 
and built private label wheels for, you know, for the last 10 years uh, for major companies. So wheels that don't have our name on them, but were built by us are being sold all over the country. So that's the diversity race line. We, we build a lot of private label stuff. Uh, I don't think people realize that about the company. Um, so anyway, that was, that was a, a cool story about the UTVs and my first experience with the first one with Todd Romano. And then to see where that came from, because I still have a 2005 Rhino. So I know what it looked like from the factory <laughs> uh, to where they are now. You know, I, I ought it's to take probably a the only one left. <laughs> oh, I don't know, but it's uh, like it's got several parts on it that say 2005 on them. Nice. Like you take one of the seats off the gas tank says 19 or it says 2005 and has some part number on it. I think it was 190, 196 off the line. Wow. Because as soon as I left Todd, I had to have one. I was like, <laughs> this is going to be better than sliced bread. There you go. <laughs> So, well, anyway, anyway, now we're two hours and 15 minutes and yeah. I'm going to let you go because I, I probably missed at least, I don't know how many phone calls, but I got to get busy. Yeah. We sell we, wheels we from the to. couch in Arkansas. There you go. All right, Greg. Thank you. Big Thank Rich. you very much. Talk yes, to you sir. later. Bye-bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating, share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.